Well, hey, let's just roll right into it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, um, one of the things that I've been thinking about that really connected me to the Luke 8 text that we're getting into this morning, um, I started thinking about, you know, if someone was to ask me or ask us, hey, it's okay, you know, what's an ideal Christian look like? Now, I have to be honest with you, I know better and there is no such thing, but there's this category, I think, in our heads that if we had to kind of run down the line of what's an ideal Christian look like, I, I tell you what, I'm pretty convinced that I, real quickly, I would not measure up because um, an ideal Christian, and again, there is no such thing, um, probably has a lot of the characteristics that I sure don't seem to always have on display. Like, you know, like the ideal Christian is someone who never loses their cool, who never gets angry, who's always patient with everyone else, no matter what kind of stressors are going on in their own life. And no matter what hard circumstances are happening, the idealish Christian, they're just fine. And when I look at that, I go, I look at me and go, yeah, that's not always true of me. Anybody else with me in this? So a couple of us in the room, the rest of you can just take a nap. It's all good. Um, and I know better, and I know a lot of you that have been around here, we talk about this sometimes, like, but I know it's so easy to slip into that mindset where we think, you know, well, if I was the ideal Christian, if I was the way I should be, if I start shooting on myself, then, then I'd be like, I never struggle, I never uh, lust, uh, I'd always know what to do, and I'd never feel incompetent or insecure if I was the ideal Christian. And the thing is, I think that there's a little sliver of this, at least in most of the minds of people, um, because especially when we think about, okay, who would God choose for his, like, A team? Um, I think that we would go, well, if God's picking a team, if he's picking the A squad to really get the message out there, they're going to need to be people that don't have any obvious character defects. Uh, they're going to be people that never get intense during a disagreement. Um, they, they also have tons of Bible knowledge. They, they, they have, if they're ideal, if they're on the A squad, then they probably have this perfect background that's squeaky clean. And, and if it's not squeaky clean, we can find a way to polish it up and make it look like it is. Uh, because, because some people might think, if you want to be on Team Jesus, you better represent the kind of life that everybody else would want, a life with no doubts, no struggles, no depression, no mental illness, no addictions, no scandals in your background or present day. Again, hopefully if you've been around here for a while, you at least know we know that isn't true. Like, we know that the sign we have out there on the street is, is really what's true. There are no perfect people, right? But sometimes, I have to admit, I sort of hold myself up to a different standard, especially if I'm trying to think of, well, who would the ideal best players be on Team Jesus? Um, and again, I think this is a universal struggle, and I think that one of the reasons the writers of the Gospels in the Bible present a really raw and straight-up picture of who it is that follows Jesus, I think they do that because they want to keep chipping away at this idea that we seem to drift into that's like, well, if you want to be on God's team, then you better be one of those idealized, perfect people that never make mistakes. Um, and so in our study here in the book of Luke, um, over and over, we're seeing Luke paint pictures of people that are less than ideal, but they are absolutely real. The people that, that Jesus chooses are not the religious elite, not the 
most intelligent people all the time, probably not the most sophisticated folks. And the people that Jesus chooses are certainly not those who never make mistakes or have a squeaky clean idealized background and family history. And the theme of the sermon series we're in that we keep coming back to in our study of the book of Luke, it's that Jesus is not just for the squeaky clean, Jesus is for everyone. And so today is going to be another example of that, where we're going to look at just a few verses that I think are kind of a goldmine um, if we dig a little bit. And these, these few verses are kind of full of nuggets of truth that, that counter that message that we so easily believe that everybody had just better be perfect and wonderful if they're going to be on the front lines for Jesus. And so those messages of what that's supposed to look like, Luke's going to counter that here. In fact, Luke is going to remind us that Jesus is not just changing the rules, he's changing the game. And that Jesus picks an unlikely team. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 8. We'll have it on the screen as well. We're going to start with chapter uh, 8. We're going to read from verse 1. We're going to do three verses. And again, this is going to give us uh, some insight into who the characters are on Team Jesus. Verse 1 says, Not long afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby cities and villages to announce the good news concerning the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women he had healed and from whom he had cast out evil spirits. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples." Okay, that's it. In fact, I kind of thought about skipping over these three verses. Part of the deal was like, if you look at verse 4, it's where Brandon started preaching last week, right? Um, Because I was like, "Ah, I would just skip that over maybe. Um, But then I remembered something. And if you're a student of the Bible at all, you know this. And if you're not, here's a good important thing to remember when it comes to studying the Bible, especially when you're studying the Gospels, the stories about Jesus. Um, There are no wasted details. How many of you know that, that Luke here doesn't waste words? He's not just kind of giving us filler. Um, in fact, there are no uh, throwaway, wasted details in Luke's story. When Luke mentions names or details, there's a reason. See, all of it matters. So that's what we're going to look at today. And, and I believe that maybe God's inviting you to find yourself connecting with parts of this story um, to identify maybe in a small way with some of the nuggets that we're going to unearth um, this morning. And, and so um, I think we just want to see what the Holy Spirit um, might invite us to notice. So just open your heart this morning as this goes out to notice little details in this few verses uh, in the longer story of the life of Jesus, as told by Luke. So look back here again at verse 1. It says, not long afterwards, um, I messed up the slides on this. Not long afterwards, I'll just read it. Jesus began a tour of the nearby cities and villages to announce the good news concerning the kingdom of God. So pause here. Jesus is on tour. He's bringing his message, this good news that, you know, that, that, that God's way, God's power has been breaking in. And then he gives us this fascinating detail. Luke says, Jesus took his 12 disciples with him. And we're all like, well, yeah, of course. <clears throat> and notice here, and also some women. We'll come back to their names, which is in the middle here. 
Uh, at the, so we skip to the end of the passage. These women, many women, by the way, who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. Now, I just, I got to point this out because this is something that I only really realized a few years ago. Um, and so I don't know about you, but for a long time in my life, I always had this picture of, okay, Jesus is out doing ministry. He's got the disciples with him. They're traveling town to town. You know, they're on tour or whatever. And, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but what I imagined was this just a picture um, of just Jesus and his 12 dudes. They're traveling around. They're, you know, camping out. I guess it's like a long road trip with just the bros, I guess. Um, <laughs> But then Luke adds this important detail that there were women also traveling with and following Jesus. In fact, if you didn't know this, um, which I didn't either, part of it might be because the other three gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John, they don't even mention these women that were a part of it until, anybody know where? The foot of the cross, like the end, like <laughs> we're, we're like three years in. This is probably four to six months in. They've been there, right? But the other ones don't mention it. But Luke says right here, shows us that the women were there the whole time, all along the journey. And I'm, thank God it's right. No wonder they didn't die, right? Yeah. <laughs> And I don't know how long it was before I realized this. In fact, here's where it kind of got curious about it. Like, I don't know, was it three or four years ago when The Chosen first came out? And, and uh, you know, they were showing women traveling in the group with Jesus. And I thought, well, you know, um, I was like, huh, I wonder where they got that idea. Maybe I thought, because they do this, like, <laughs> it's creative imagination, like, just to make the story interesting. I really kind of wondered. And then I was like, oh, how many times have I blown through these three verses because Luke tells us here, no, they were there the whole time, right? It's amazing. Now, part of what's kind of interesting um, or unusual about this, what's unusual about this is, is that um, you have the history, the culture, the religious beliefs. And in that system, rabbis, and there were a lot of rabbis, teachers, uh, religious teachers, they didn't have women disciples. They weren't allowed. Um, and Jesus is changing the game. <laughs> um, and also, um, there were cultural expectations, societal roles for women around family and around um, the home. It was very clear expectations in that culture. But here we see Jesus. He's traveling with a group of men and women, and he's having them relate as brothers and sisters. Now, by the way, None of the Jews rabbis had women travel with them, but the Greek scholars would do that. And when women traveled with those scholars and their disciples, um, it was not brother and sister. Um, so it started to look scandalous, but Jesus makes this a priority. He has them relate as brothers and sisters, even though it looks scandalous, even though religious people from the day would have noticed this and, and they would talk and they would grumble about yet another rule that Jesus ignored. And um, in a minute, we'll see some more of the names. But, but Luke also here, he says, there were many women. And in verse 3, said that they were, here's what they were doing. They were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. 
again, this is really kind of a big deal. Like scholars estimate that there were probably at least 20 people that were traveling in Jesus' posse here. And so you're providing for 20 people and this could not have been cheap. So Luke here is pointing out there's generous patrons, supporters that are helping it happen. Now that happened for most rabbis where there would be a supporter, a patron that would, you know, fund the ministry. But for rabbis, they were very careful. The other rabbis especially, very careful about where the money came from to support this ministry that they were doing. Um, which kind of reminds me of a story. This might have, you guys might have heard this story before. Um, um, but... but I'll tell it anyway. The story where there's a guy in a church, he won a bunch of money in the lottery, and his, you know, his church had preached very specifically about the evils of gambling, and, and uh, the lottery were, were evil, and he played it anyway, and then, huh, great, what are you going to do? He wins, right? <laughs> he wins. Um, and he felt so guilty, so he comes to his pastor to confess, and he says, Pastor, I won, but I just, like, I feel so guilty about this. I think I should give all this money away, but I know, like, the church isn't going to want it, right? <laughs> you guys know where this is going, right? Yeah. And the pastor says, no, 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 no. You go ahead, you bring those ill-gotten gains to the church because that money's been in the devil's hands for long enough. So, I don't know if that really happened, but it sounded like a good story, but... But back in Jesus' day, that wouldn't even have been a question. Like, where the money came from mattered a ton. Who you accepted money from really spoke a lot because if you, expect, if you, if you accepted money from someone and then let people know they were your supporters, um, as Luke is doing right here, you are honoring them by naming them as your partners in ministry. So when that culture, he's doing this, these, these partners are women, and they're helping pay Jesus' bills. Like, think about it. Like, when the check for the meal came to the table for this big group, the women picked it up. They took care of it. And by the way, I'm going to get off on a little tangent, but, 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 but do you kind of even just right here, there's so much other biblical stuff on this, but can you see how crazy it is when churches don't allow women to do certain things like teach or lead or preach or be elders or priests? Like, because Jesus' movement started with women who were not only fully empowered participants, but they were also bankrolling the work. And I just go, ah, how ridiculous is it when a religious institution misinterprets, in my view, they misinterpret some scriptures to come up with a list of what women can and can't do. Um, and if you're new here, I have a whole kind of teaching that talks about some of those verses, but we can give that to you if you're interested. Uh, but we believe that the Bible supports women as full partners in ministry. But I digress, I digress. There we go. Let me get back on focus here, back on the target here. So, um, all right, here, back to the main point. Jesus, Jesus honors and advances the cause of women and just even that little detail right there, that these women traveled with Jesus and paid Jesus' bills. So even if we didn't think that was a big deal today, back in that culture, this was like a flashing headline billboard that was highlighting yet another revolutionary idea from Jesus that nobody in that culture would have missed. And it reminded folks that Jesus is not just changing the rules, he's changing the game. And Jesus picks what looks like to them 
an unlikely team. Just, just let me say this for a moment. So if you, especially are a woman here, um, and maybe you were taught or you thought that you didn't qualify because of your gender, um, hear me here, even the subtext of this saying that, that Jesus invites you. Jesus calls you. Jesus wants to partner with you because Jesus is for everyone. Amen. Everyone. Okay. Back to the text. Here we go. All right. Again, remember, there's no wasted throwaway details, so we're mining for some nuggets in Luke's story. All this stuff is mentioned for a reason, so look at this next nugget here. Look at who says Luke is traveling with in this posse. Um, there's Mary Magdalene. We'll get back to her. And verse 3 says, <clears throat> Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager. Like, oh, like, I even put it in bigger print just to make sure we didn't miss it up there and skate past it, right? But, but did you catch, like, the mind-boggling name drop in those <laughs> names right there? Like, wh whose household? Herod's household. And people reading this back then would be like, Herod? They'd be like, yeah, right, it's Herod. Um, and, and by the way, just a little history lesson here. Uh, indulge me for three minutes on a history lesson, okay? Um, this is not Herod the Great, um, uh, this is actually his son, Herod Antipas, but, but Herod the Great uh, was before his son. He was the puppet king installed by Rome uh, over all of Israel, and he died uh, about 4 AD. Fascinating story of what happened to him and when he died, and it was not a great death, um, but uh, I'll stop right there. Um, he was a powerful figure, Herod the Great, powerful figure. He dominated the political landscape of the whole region that covered Israel for 40 years. He was known for being like the builder. He would build massive palaces and theaters and fortresses. Um, he was also known, um, Herod the Great, uh, was also known for being uber paranoid and killing lots of people out of his paranoia, including his wife. Um, and paranoid enough that he killed some of his own sons. Um, Herod, this Herod, the so-called great, uh, is also the one who ordered the execution of all the babies under age two around Bethlehem when Jesus was born. So that Herod, not so great if you ask me. Well, when that Herod died, Rome says, ah, we're going to divide up his kingdom into three spots. We're going to give to each of his sons. And that's how this Herod shows up. Herod Antipas, the son who was given this region of Galilee, probably the best region, and this is where Jesus was raised and started his ministry in under Herod Antipas. And by the time Jesus' ministry really gets rolling, Herod Antipas is a very, very rich man. He's owned lots of land. Some historians estimate that he owned one-third. He himself owned one-third of the land around Galilee, in Galilee. One-third was his. Um, Antipas had palaces and guards and servants and a massive household, the biggest one in the country. And again, who managed this king's household? I know we even give it to you on the screen. Chusa, Chusa, Chusa did. And he's then uh, he's responsible for a massive amount of wealth, right? Which would make him and his family very wealthy too. Um, and because of Chusa's wealth, his wife, Joanna, actually is able to travel around with this nomadic rabbi and pay Jesus' bills. Now, just let that sink in, right? Just 
think about this, right? Here she is. This woman would have been in the top echelon of the upper class. Like her husband's job would be the equivalent to our, um, today to our U.S. president's chief of staff, which means her life was extravagant. It was, it was full of banquets with other elite people who had power. It means her family has access to all the beautiful palaces and seaside places to stay around the nation. She, she's grown used to the finest clothing, first-rate furniture. She has servants to take care of her every need. And yet, at some point, something mattered more to Joanna than all the stuff she had enough so that she left it all behind to hit the road with Jesus and his disciples. Just think of this upper-class woman. I mean, this really paints a fascinating picture of the dynamics that happen when we actually do follow Jesus together. Joanna, instead of dining at the four-star restaurants, instead she's sitting around the dinner table with a bunch of small-town fishermen who are... Guys that are probably in their late teens who, you know, no offense to teenage boys, but they're not always, you know, educated company, um, educated in manners. Uh, so she's, instead of doing the four-star thing with them, she's sitting around with these guys. And, and instead of staying in palaces, she's sharing a room at the Motel 6 in Cana with Mary, who used to have seven demons. <laughs> this is her new roommate. <laughs> And just, I think that, that following Jesus often means that God enlarges your heart, enlarges your circle to put you around people who might be very different from you, different ages, different economic groups, different ethnicities. God's going to enlarge your heart, enlarge your circle as you follow him. And by the way, God's gonna also going to have to enlarge their heart to put up with you. So this is a good thing, right? Again, that sounds kind of like family, doesn't it? Yeah, that's it's what it is. Um, one more thing here on uh, uh, Joanna. She, again, had power, privilege, prestige from being connected to the power broker in the region, Herod. And Herod was not a fan of Jesus. Um, Verse 1 from what we read earlier said that Jesus went around announcing the good news concerning the what? The kingdom of who? Of Herod? No, no, yeah, you guys have got it. The kingdom of God. Can you imagine the courage that it took for Joanna to publicly identify as a follower of Jesus Christ? She had to be like, Oh, yeah, Jesus, the one who's proclaiming a different kingdom than Herod's kingdom? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm following him. I'm following Jesus. Uh, again, that wasn't easy because Herod was threatened by Jesus. Herod was violent. Herod, this is the same Herod who um, beheaded John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. This, that, this is that Herod. Um, and though it looks like big bad Herod is powerful, just think about this. The text says Joanna supported Herod, uh, sorry, Joanna supported Jesus financially with money that her husband got from who? Herod, which I love this, right? This means that um, Herod might not know this, but Herod is actually helping fund Jesus' ministry, right? This is fantastic. I mean, think about like, 
You know, maybe it's the end of the year and Matthew's going through the spreadsheet of who gave what and disciples are looking at the list of key donors for the fiscal year and Herod, he'd have been in the gold star club for sure, like, right? They're probably like, hey, maybe we need to send him a thank you note, a plaque for his wall, I don't know. But Joanna, uh, this is the last thought on Joanna, she just to wrap up, what a great example of someone who knows what really matters She knows what's worth sacrificing for. And when she decides what really matters, she decides to join Team Jesus. Again, Jesus picks, he has the most unlikely team. Because he's not just changing the rules, he's changing the game. And maybe for some of you, you find yourself on one end of the social, cultural hierarchy spectrum or on the other side of it. Maybe you even think you can't really relate to typical church people. But hey, that's not what Jesus' church was ever supposed to be about. Like God didn't call us to just hang out with people who are just like us, same age, same background, same, none of it, right? God's building a family of brothers and sisters who know that Jesus has saved their life. We know that we'd be lost without Jesus, So that's why we follow him together, not based on what we agree on, not based on similar backgrounds. We follow Jesus together as a family because we know that Jesus matters way more than our history. Jesus matters way more than our social status. Jesus matters way more than our political allegiances. Is anybody with me this morning? Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Last nugget, the last detail that I want to pull out of this passage here. This might be my favorite one. Mary Magdalene, right? Mary Magdalene. Luke 8 here says, took the 12 disciples with him, Jesus did, verse 12, along with some women that he'd healed and from whom he had cast out evil spirits. By the way, N.T. Wright says that he's implying that it's not just Mary, that they'd all been healed and had evil cast out. Um, But then he specifically says, among them, were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Now, Mary, been a very common name. In their language, um, she would have been uh, Miriam, would have been the name Miriam. And Miriam was this feisty name with a great Old Testament kind of history background behind it. Um, And Mary, this particular Mary, because there were a lot of Marys, uh, she was from a fishing town named Magdala. So Mary of Magdala, Um, so by the way, Magdalene is not her last name, it's just to indicate where she's from. Um, And again, I'm going to talk about the chosen again, and I I know not everything, they they guess a lot, they take some artistic license, and you know, um, it's not all probably exactly how it happened, but I love how the chosen, the writers of the chosen imagined what maybe Mary Magdalene's life had looked like. And I love how they first go, well, they imagine um, kind of a backstory of her childhood. They, they try to portray that, that when Mary was little, when she was afraid, that maybe her father would remind her to say the words that God, that Adonai had given to the prophet Isaiah. Her dad teaches her to recite the scriptures. Thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You 
mine. That's the promise that maybe she would recite when she was afraid. She had it locked into her deepest memory. Now, Scripture does tell us right there, it says she was tormented by how many demons? Seven. It's like somebody counted, like five, six, seven. I mean, I don't, I don't know how that worked right there, um, but seven demons. Um, whew. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that at some point in Mary's life, there was probably some sort of major loss, some deep trauma. There might have been something that led to this demon possession. Um, we know from other places in Scripture where we see if a person's under heavy level of demonic assault, that we see they weren't in their right minds. It was possible that they would forget who they actually were. They would even forget what their true name is and go by a different name. That's not uncommon. Uh, we know from history that Jewish culture, uh, history tells that, that they have rituals. Uh, there's rituals for casting out demons. Um, and so while the Bible doesn't give us any specifics or details about that with Mary, um, if someone had tried to cast out her demons, it obviously had never worked. And so the chosen depicts what a failed exorcism may have looked like for Mary. We're only going to watch a short part of that um, scene. And then we're going to see when it doesn't work, her frustration and tearing up the words actually of that scripture that she used to recite. And then they cut to a scene where they imagine what she would have done next after that discouragement where maybe she went... Um, to drown her sorrows, try to drink and forget her tormented life that she couldn't even remember her true name. But check out this creative depiction of what her story might have looked like when she finally met Jesus. Leave me alone. 
Says the Lord who created you. And he who formed you. Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. We see the God who created her and formed Mary and comes for her, redeems her. God calls Mary. He calls Mary to be a follower, one of the original followers of Jesus, according to Scripture. And by the way, I love this part, Mary never stops following. Even a few years later, when Jesus is arrested, the men disciples cut and run. Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is, but Mary of Magdala, she's the one who remains faithful. And spoiler alert, this, this, this formerly tormented by demons woman, she's the first person that Jesus appears to when he is resurrected. See, Mary of Magdala is picked to be on team Jesus because, again, Jesus' team, it's an unlikely team, but he's not just changing the rules. He has changed the game which I hope is encouragement for any of you who may have come from a background where there's deep brokenness or maybe trauma that you've experienced. Maybe, maybe you know what it's like to be tormented by depression or mental illness. Maybe even you know what those dark forces in the spirit realm feel like that try to take you out. And if you know even just a little taste of any of that, if you know a little bit about any of that kind of story, I believe Jesus wants you to find hope this morning in seeing Mary's story. See, Jesus wants to heal you, to deliver you to set you free and to give you a place of honor at his table. You are not 
bound forever by your brokenness. You are welcome at Jesus' table because the same promise of Isaiah is true for you as well. The Lord created you, formed you, knows you. And no matter what this world has thrown at you, no matter the trauma, the abuse, the despair, the darkness, the wounds you have suffered, or even the spiritual attack and darkness you have seen, Jesus, I believe, speaks those same words for you. Fear not, fear not. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. You, says Jesus, are mine. See, when Jesus picks his unlikely team, he picks and chooses you as well. And that's just the scratching of the surface of Luke Chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We didn't even have to dig that deep, but it's this beautiful stuff that's just right there as encouragement to our hearts. So the worship team comes and prayer ministry as you take your place um, at the prayer area in back. I want you to remember again, there's no wasted throwaway lines in Luke's story. This, this is all mentioned. All this stuff is mentioned for a reason. It all matters. And the Bible, it's just so rich, it's so deep. And we could have just flown by three verses and missed some of what maybe Jesus wanted to say to us. But Luke, he knew the people back in his day, these first century readers, they would have blown, blown away. They'd been blown away by these details. Some of them would have been scandalized by these details. Might, might have even some of them said, wait, you mean like people like that were in Jesus' posse? Like he allowed women to travel with him? He, he teamed up with characters who, who would have had no place at all in the religious elites culture that existed up to that point? That's who Jesus partners with? That's who has a place in Jesus' story? That's who's welcome at his table? Uh, I mean... Come on, like Joanna, she's connected to Herod. And I mean, you know, no one can stand Herod. We all agree that Herod is evil. And by the way, Herod was evil. This is true. <laughs> but they might say, but, but we also reject anyone who's complicit with Herod, anyone who, who has benefited from his lying, his cheating, his dishonesty. And then yet Joanna, you're saying Joanna gets to be around Jesus? She gets invited to Jesus' table? And they'd probably go, and Wild Mary, Wild Mary. Oh. Think of what she might have done while under the influence of those demons. She was probably so far gone that she didn't even know her name, much less all the things she probably did. And you're telling me she is on Team Jesus. She gets a seat. She gets invited to Jesus' table. Luke's writing this out in a way as to say, well, yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. Because Jesus really is for everyone. And even though we humans often get this backwards, we start making it all about the rules or religious performance. Um, we start thinking that the, the A-Squad must consist of the brilliant theologians, the people that have no scandals in their background. Um, when we do that, we're instinctively measuring by the standards of the kingdom of this world. 
which that's not how the kingdom of God works, is it? Because Jesus didn't just change the rules, he changed the game. And Jesus picks you and 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 even me. Jesus wants you on his team. He wants you at his table because Jesus is for everyone. Even imperfect people like me and like you. So we sing this song. Um, Some of you might need prayer this morning. So even as we sing, like don't have to, you don't have to wait till the service is over. You can go right now. Our prayer team's waiting. You can just make your way back there during the song. But I do believe that, that, that God invited many of us this morning to connect with parts of this story. And so as we sing this song, I'm just asking all of us to open our hearts. Will you open your heart to the invitation of Jesus? just for you.